There's a man that you probably have never heard of, but whose work is a pretty routine part of your life. The man's name is, is William Cowper. He was a man who was many things, but he's most known to us now because of the poetry, the hymns that he wrote, particularly in a season of extraordinary personal affliction. He was a profoundly depressed man. He made multiple attempts on his own life. And at the end of that last attempt, he began to put together how the, the trials personally that he was going through had actually allowed him to see the sufficiency of Jesus through those trials in a way that he might never have otherwise known. And so he penned a hymn that maybe some in this room uh, with a little more tread on the tires uh, know or have heard, but I, I would imagine most of, it, of us haven't. The name of the hymn was God Works in a Mysterious Way. And most people believe that the phrase that we so quickly utter when we experience something unexpected in our lives for which there is an outcome we didn't anticipate, that phrase being God works in mysterious ways. Today we are going to look at a hymn authored on the spot by Mary in response to her just profound awareness of the mystery of God's activity in her life and the unusual way that he is bringing about in her life and in the world his perfect plan. Today, by looking at her example and hearing her words, we ourselves are going to be able, hopefully in a new way, to behold the unusual ways in which God works in our lives and in the world. And we'll begin that as we pick up the narrative in Luke chapter 1, verse 39. We have just had the experience of, of witnessing the angel Gabriel appear to Mary and say that she would bear a child, uh, giving a confirming sign that her cousin Elizabeth and her husband Zachariah at an old age are also expecting. And so after that opportunity to hear a confirming sign, Mary is anxious to go and see Elizabeth herself. And so in verse 39 it says, in those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she, who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. In other words, blessed be you, Mary, for believing the angel Gabriel and coming to see the confirming sign he gave you in Zechariah and I expecting a child late in life. Now, normally how we go through sermons here is 
we will read the entire passage designated for the day, kind of highlight some things that we want to hold on to, and then when we get to the end of things, kind of provide some application handles or some, some understanding handles to everything that we have just seen. But have you ever been to a movie that you really like, decide you're going to buy the DVD or you're going to buy the online content, and when you do, you get bonus content? You ever do that? Is bon- well, I'm about to give you bonus content, okay? So here's the bonus content. I want you to, if you're a note taker, I want you to write down that God's ways are unusually ordinary. That'll be the bonus content of the other two points later. God's ways are unusually ordinary. Out of curiosity, has anybody in this room been watching on the Disney streaming service the Beatles documentary? Anybody? Raise your hands. It's interesting. This service won't stream. The next service won't know who the Beatles are. So uh, it's just one of those things. So uh, you know who the Beatles are, though. I mean, you all bought the record, stayed home from church, and watched it on Ed Sullivan, right? I mean, you did that. My mom and dad told me that they got in trouble by their pastor because they wandered in late uh, Ed Sullivan night. Well, I'm a big Beatles fan, and so I just got drawn in. And it's, it's really interesting. It's just footage of them interacting putting together what would be their last album, Let It Be, and there's no narration. It's just showing how everything came together and really the dysfunction in the group as they neared their end. And, and so there's just a lot of just very ordinary things going on. And it, that would not be otherwise interesting if it weren't for the fact that it were the Beatles. And there's one scene that really stands out. So you have John, and you have George, and you have Ringo talking to management about a TV special that ultimately never would come about. I mean, it's just an inane business conversation that is, is not interesting <laughs> in the slightest. But off in the background, you hear Paul goofing around on the piano. Now, one of the things that I've discovered in watching this documentary is that the Beatles didn't so much as write songs as they did discover them. They would be goofing around on their instruments, and then they would hit a riff or a lick that they liked, and then it would just expand into a song that we know. So Paul's over here. He's goofing around on the piano. They're having this just just boring, just ears bleed boring conversation about business. And then all of a sudden, in the background, you hear Paul discover the opening to Let It Be on the piano. And I watched these guys, and they're just all over here, yeah, yeah, business, business. And I wanted to say, wait a minute, something amazing just happened over here. And you think this thing's important that you're doing right now, but, but this isn't even going to happen. And you wouldn't otherwise remember this moment if it weren't for the fact that something extraordinary happened in the background of your life just over there. Pay attention, but they didn't listen to me. They just kept talking while Paul began to figure out one of their greatest songs. I want you to think about the ordinary moment that we just witnessed together in Scripture. You have a family member saying hello to a family member. Broaden it out a little bit. You have a family member who's pregnant saying hello to another family member who's pregnant. I wonder how many millions of those conversations 
have happened just in the last 24 hours on planet Earth. There's no telling how many of that kind of conversation has happened. But Elizabeth's ears were informed by the understanding that the entire universe is pregnant with the presence of God. And as such, every moment holds an opportunity for God to do something extraordinary. So in the most ordinary of moments, hello, God works in her in a powerful way that we are reading about 2,000 years later. One of the most unusual ways that God works is just in the ordinary way in which he operates in our lives. We all live in the same kind of world that Elizabeth lived in, a world pregnant with the presence of God. And as such, every single moment of life holds an opportunity for God to move in a way that will fundamentally change us. So one of the key life skills that we have to have in life is is being aware of God's activity in the ordinary. So there's your bonus content, okay? Now let's keep going through Mary's response as Elizabeth proclaims these things to her. Mary responds with this beautiful hymn that is known as the Magnificat, which is the first word of the a text that we are about to read in Latin. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. You know, this is not Mary's native language. She did not speak English. And so we have to take her words and bring them into English. And this may be an experience where our, our language, English, has a hard time keeping up with the depth of, of what Mary is proclaiming here. That word humble is what I'm thinking of. Most of our English translations will translate that as either humble, as it does here, or lowly. But another very appropriate translation, and which informs both humble and lowly in Mary's mind, is the word afflicted. So it would read or feel like in her heart when she said this, for he has looked on the afflicted estate of his servant. I want us to stop and think for a minute about what afflicted Mary. And the hint as as to what afflicted her is given to us in the line above that, where she says, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Part of what afflicted her is what afflicts all of us. What afflicted her was her sin. Now, I don't mean to pick fights with believers of other stripes, but I would say to those that hold to the sinless perfection of Mary that she refers to God as her Savior. And those who don't need redemption don't need a Savior. I believe she's giving voice to her sinfulness. But more than that, because she's a Jew, she's giving voice really to the sinfulness of her people who have over and over again erected idols and chose to follow those idols rather than follow with their full heart the Lord. He has no reason to continue to mess with the nation 
because they're sinners. He has no reason to mess with her because she's a sinner, and yet she's awakening to the realization that he has. The other thing she uses to kind of give us an insight to the affliction she felt is that word estate, which basically just means her station in life. What was her station in life? Well, she was extraordinarily poverty-stricken. We know this because Luke, as he goes on, tells us that when Joseph and Mary showed up with the infant Jesus to have him dedicated in the temple, that they offered what the Old Testament allowed for couples to offer if they were in extreme poverty. So in other words, the, the offering or the dedication offering, sacrifice that was to be made was, was something that most people could afford. But Joseph and Mary weren't most people. Uh, she was in extreme poverty. And then add to that, she was a woman in the first century. She had no standing. She had no voice whatsoever. And yet she's awakening. And what is causing her heart to rejoice is the idea that God has regarded her. He has seen her. Even though she's a sinner from a sinful people who is at the bottom rung. Now, I want you to hang on to that bottom rung idea because she's going to pick that back up in just a minute. But for right now, look at the rest of verse 48. She goes on to say, For behold, from now on, generations will call me blessed. I am someone who is in this afflicted estate, and yet now there's been a reversal. People will call me blessed, for he who is mighty, and that word mighty in her Old Testament frame of reference always signals the saving acts of God. For he who is mighty, he who is the saving one, has done great things for me, and holy is his name. So she's thinking about this broader program that what, of what God wants to do, but she's also leaning into the idea that it's happening to me. The words me jump off the page at me. She knows that God is doing something globally and worldwide, but God has seen her. He is doing something in me. This is an intensely personal experience for, for Mary, which we'll think about in more depth in just a moment. Verse 50, she goes on to talk about what God is doing through her, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. And then note, she says, he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate, those who are in her situation. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has set away empty. One of the things that we lose sight of in salvation, largely because we have made it just about us and, and not about what God is doing to establish a kingdom of people like us, is that we miss out on the notion that the coming of the Messiah, the coming of Jesus, represented a coming great reversal. Think of it this way. We live in a world that has been turned upside down by sin. And because it has been turned upside down by sin, we value things that are unimportant. We uh, pursue things that won't last. And we kind of stratify culture and society saying these people belong at the top and these people belong at the bottom. But Mary notes that with the coming of Jesus... 
the world that is upside down and, and values things that are important and pursues things that don't matter and elevates people uh, based on standards that, that God doesn't accept, all of that is going to be turned right side up. He's turning the world right side up with her, and he will continue that program and turn the world right side up through the work of the child that she was carrying. He actually goes on, this child, Jesus, when he lays out his kingdom agenda for his followers in a passage of scripture called the Sermon on the Mount, open it with pronouncements of blessing. They're known as the Beatitudes. And every one of those are blessings on a group of people or on a situation that you would not expect to see. There is a coming reversal because of the work of Jesus. She is not saying, nor does the Old Testament or New Testament say God hates rich people. But he is one who hates the idea that the world has that rich people are more important and should get their way before the people who are at the low end of things. In fact, God is at work in the lives of the people at the low end of things. Then she goes on to specifically focus on the people of Israel. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. In spite of our sin, in spite of us pursuing things that we shouldn't pursue, grasping for things that won't last, elevating status on standards that God doesn't accept, in spite of all of that, he still remembered his promise to Abraham that he would make Israel a great nation. And through that great nation, all of the world would be blessed. And the thing that drives all of this, what's causing her soul to magnify the Lord, is her experience of essentially having her mind blown that God would do this. God is working, she is saying to us, in a mysterious, unusual way. And all of us will be blessed because he is. So what we need to do today as we kind of wrap things up here is I think we need to look at her example and look at her words and understand God's unusual ways so that we can be more alert to them in our lives. Now, we've already seen God works in ways that are unusually ordinary. He's just in that common moment because because every single molecule of the universe is pregnant with the presence of God. But beyond that, we can see this. God works in ways that are unusually personal. Unusually personal. I want you to think about the tool that God uses to speak to us. A lot of times we think it's, you know, uh, just kind of some whisper in our brain. But, but ultimately, God's tool to speak to us is his word. Something that all of us have access to. It's common to all of us. But Mary is experiencing God's voice to her through the word in an unusually personal way. Think about it. Those words, which billions have had access to, have the capacity to speak to us personally. Here's how I know that she is being spoken to personally by the word. If you were to compare the words of Mary in this hymn 
with the words of a hymn composed by the Old Testament person Hannah, who was given uh, by God the opportunity to have a child when she thought she would be unable to. That child's name was Samuel, and this prayer is recorded in 1 Samuel 2. If you were to compare Hannah's words and Mary's words, you'd see a great deal of similarity. So what, what should we take from that? We should take from that that, that Mary was deeply acquainted with Hannah's words, but not in a clinical way. Not that she knew subject, verb, predicate, direct object, all of that. Not that she had, had been able to diagram all of those sentence, sentences. She had taken it in and she had absorbed it at the core of her being so that at a key moment in her life that she did not know was coming, God could use that to speak to her personally. Beyond just that, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, that's informing what she is saying here, we count at least 18 other references to the Old Testament. 18 other references to the Old Testament. And so, so what we can deduce from that is that God speaks to us in an unusual way because he takes that which is common to everybody, doesn't seem extraordinary at all, but he can use it in our lives in a uniquely personal way. So, I want to give you a, an example of a rediscovery of that from my life. A little over a year ago, um, from really good intention, I, I decided that I was going to give the, the next year of my life to reading large sections of Scripture at once. Because... I had found in doing so, I could see broader themes that I might not otherwise see rise to the top. And it was just kind of a beneficial thing to me. And I have probably never been more consistent in my personal devotion than doing that. I mean, I have a routine. I get up. I let the dogs out. I feed the dogs. I make coffee. I sit down in my brown chair in the pre-dawn darkness, and I was reading God's Word. But here's what subtly began to happen. I was no longer experiencing Jesus' presence in those moments. I was just reading. I just needed to read because I got to get from here to here so that at target date, I will be done. And what I discovered while I was on sabbatical is that even though I was reading God's Word faithfully every day, I had not provided an opportunity in that reading to encounter the presence of Jesus, and that absence of a daily encounter with the presence of Jesus had made everything that I had had to go through as a leader fundamentally more difficult than what it should have been. And so I have rebooted and rediscovered and restored in my life, reflecting on God's Word, reading a passage slowly, reading a verse, reading a part of a verse slowly, and reflecting on it in conversation with God and that presence of Jesus is becoming what it was before I switched things up a year or so ago. See, because Mary had been doing that, because she had been experiencing God's Word at the personal level, when an ordinary moment took place, hello, Elizabeth, she was equipped and ready to hear God's voice directly to her to put handles on it in a way that we're being blessed by 2,000 years later. So God's ways are unusually personal. 
But the other thing I would say to you as we look at Mary's example is that God's ways are unusually powerful. They frequently catch us off guard. I am not a person prone to shed tears. Julie and I have been married almost 32 years. She will tell you the only two times that Derek cries are when babies are born and bird dogs die. I mean, that's, that's essentially it. I just, I'm not prone to tears. It is a very unusual thing for me to be moved to the point where I will begin to cry. Several years ago, we were going on a, a staff retreat to Tulsa. We do it every spring. But I was required to drive myself rather than drive with a group of people, ride with a group of people, because after the staff retreat was over, I had to drive to Topeka to do some work for our denomination. And so I was by myself, and when I'm by myself, I, I listen to music. I grew up in a radio station, you know, so I listen to music. And uh, obviously, I listen to the Beatles. I mean, we figured that out this morning. But I, I, listen, to, I listen to other things. And, and I'd gotten into northern Oklahoma, uh, Ulaga. Nobody knows where Ulaga is. I do. Um, and I decided, you know, I'm going to switch this over to some Christian music. And, and I put in Casting Crowns and a song that I love. John will tell you it's just right there at the top for me. I put in the song, Glorious Day. We sang it last week. I've sung it a million times. And so I'm driving down the road. I began to sing Glorious Day. And, and all of a sudden, I'm weeping. And I'm not talking, you know, these little pretty tears, I was just going, ah, you know, driving down the road, weeping, because as I was singing those words in a way that I had not done in a long, long time, I began to recognize the salvation that I'd been given, what it meant to be saved by the life and work of Jesus, and I began to anticipate, as that song leads us to anticipate, the coming of Jesus again and I was caught off guard and I was moved powerfully at the depths of my soul and I cried a long time you can't manufacture an experience with God you just can't do it God is unusual in the ways he works but when he does work you can expect it to be powerful. Sometimes it may be at the core of our emotions, and sometimes it may be in a resolve, and sometimes it may be in a, a desire to be obedient in ways that you've never dreamed possible. But when God moves, it'll catch you off guard because it will be unusually powerful. What do we learn from our passage? We learn that God's ways are unusually ordinary. Every single molecule, atom of the universe is pregnant with the presence of God. And therefore, we all have an opportunity in any moment, any ordinary moment, to experience the activity and move of God. God's ways are unusually personal. He will tailor his program from the, for the world, and he will tailor the word that he has given everyone to speak uniquely and personally to you in key moments of daily life and in key moments in the overall scope of life. And, and watch out when he does that in ways that you might not expect or might not even be ordinary with you, he will move powerfully. So what then do we do? 
I mean, what do we do with understanding that God moves in the ordinary and, and God, God moves in a way that's personal, God moves in a way that's powerful? What must we do? We must do what Mary models for us in that we need to be engaging the Word of God on the personal level with God. I, I'm telling you, you could have read the Bible through multiple times. But if you are not lingering over every word of the inspired word of God to the world, you will miss God's personal word to you. You have to deepen your connection and reflection on the word of God. You have to memorize it. I mean, you have to do these things that we've known forever, but we just have to commit ourselves to do it. We have to commit ourselves to do it. We have to also put ourselves with God's people. If we don't put ourselves with God's people, we will never perhaps get the spark that we need to ignite the flame in our lives. I want you to understand that Mary's life with Scripture filled in it was kindling, but Elizabeth lit the match. And I, I will say to those that are watching us online, you may need to be home watching us online because of the risk that, that it would be for you to venture out but you also need to open yourself to the idea that maybe you're there because it's convenient and easy. And if you're there by yourself in your room with a thousand different things going on, you might miss the match on the kindling. You have to be with God's people if you can be with God's people. And then you just need to be aware when you walk to the car and when you go out to eat and when you go to your house and when you lay down to take an afternoon nap and when you turn on the chiefs tonight that you're living in a universe that is pregnant with the presence of God with those commitments to the word and commitments to God's people and understanding that God's everywhere and active it might be that in a way that will catch you off guard but change you fundamentally God will intersect and impact your life 